entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Hey, four shows. We've completed four shows, and we're still doing it. Have you gotten any visits from Men in Black yet? No, no, no. I know the man, though, who was one of the main figures who coined the term Men in Black. Actually, there are two people involved here. One was the late Gray Barker. Gray Barker was a UFO investigator from West Virginia, Clarksburg, West Virginia, as a matter of fact, who wrote a book called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And this book kind of spelled out the early lore about men in black, allegedly government people who come to visit those who have reported UFO sightings and other strange situations and tell them to keep quiet about the raw details. That's well, some the, people don't even think they're from the government, though. No. Some people think they're the space people, and yeah. that gets to be a, more of an interesting story, which I'll tell you in a second before I explain that you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We'll tell you about our guests in a moment, but let's talk about the men in black. Now, there was a guy named Albert K. Bender back in the early 1950s. He was Bender? a UFO investigator, and he had something called like the International Flying Saucer Bureau, IFSB. Okay. After a year or two, and we're talking about a guy who probably was in his late teens, early 20s when this happened, right. he puts an item in his newsletter saying that he has learned about the secrets of the UFOs, except now he can't talk about them. Exactly why? Well, he closed down his Flying Saucer Club, but Gray Barker didn't believe that he was telling the entire story. So Barker goes and visits him, and finally, over the period of time that's recounted in this book, they knew too much about flying saucers, he explains that three men in dark suits, or black suits, I've heard both, contacted Albert K. Bender, and that they told him that he had come too close to the real secrets, and he should shut his mouth. See, I gotta tell you, that sounds strange to me, Gene. Why would someone come and tell the guy, you're coming too close? Wouldn't that make the guy want to get, I don't know, closer to the truth? Well, supposedly they scared him out of his wits, so instead of wanting to get closer, he decided to give the whole thing up. <sighs> okay. They scared him out of his wits how? With dematerialization threats? <laughs> uh, with auditing his taxes? See, this is something that, that keeps cropping up, Gene, that I want to get to the bottom to. Maybe at some point we'll have a guest on that will explain to us what it is that people are so damned afraid of. I think about talking if about somebody stuff. comes in a dark suit or a black suit and says, I represent the government. Now, today they could do it. They could say, look, we're going to take a look at your income taxes. We're going to have the Homeland Security come in there, and we're going to do all sorts of things that you don't want to know about. Now, that's today. But before we had a Patriot Act, and we're talking about the 50s and 60s, what could the government possibly bring as a threat except for the respect Okay, the respect that people held of the government in those days. So if the government asked you to do something, Uncle Sam says, do it for the good of your country, perhaps they would. Not now, but uh, then. Next week, I'm going to come clean with an experience that I had in this realm that will help our listeners understand why it is I'm even doing this show with you. I mean, people have wondered, well, this guy, Biedney, sounds skeptical, but, uh, you know, why is he out there to debunk all this stuff? And as I said from the beginning, Gene, I want to understand what all of this activity is about. So next week, we're going to do something very special where I'm going to tell our listeners about something that was really, really outrageous, and we're going to have on one of my co-witnesses to this thing 
this episode, this incident. And I'm not afraid to talk about it at this point. In fact, it looks like there might even be some real documentation about this in existence. But we're going to talk about something that in the UFO world, I've discovered is practically unknown, but in Caracas, Venezuela, was a very big deal in 1974. I don't know if the first guest we have today, William H. Kennedy, has things that are secretive. He's mentioning the fact, or what he claims is a fact, that some people, that some people who were involved in mass murderers, horrendous, insidious criminals, were also devil worshippers. Mm. And- and Coca-Cola drinkers. Well, the Coca-Cola drinking, well, then I'm in trouble right now. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I have some issues with this whole topic. I, I, I'm more likely to believe that people who kill things for fun and for pleasure are more likely to have suffered very bad childhood trauma and experiences, possibly abuse at the hands of a parent or a guardian. I don't know about this whole satanic influence thing, but it would explain a lot about the current U.S. administration, wouldn't it? Well, okay, maybe we're taking the paranoid approach there, too. <laughs> hey, you know, I don't know. Paranoia can be a very profitable route. And our second guest <laughs> today, by the way, is another Bill, or William, William Konkoleski. He's Michigan State Coordinator for the Mutual UFO Network, or a MUFON. And he is definitely someone who has a lot of interesting stuff to say with regard to UFOs. And he represents an organization that is considered the largest in the USA. Okay, 3,000 members. That may not seem like a lot of people. But this is a day and age when young people don't migrate to UFO organizations. A lot of the people who are involved in this group or in these various groups are people over 40, except for Bill Konkoleski. He's actually under he's 40. He's younger, right? He's in his 30s, I think. Yeah, he's 35. You're listening to the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. .net it's all out of this world I've been around for a long long year so many amazed so free I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain me damn sure the pilot washed his hands and sealed his face First question, William Kennedy, and that is, regarding those church arsonists in Alabama, were they practicing Satanists? Uh, yes, the three people arrested, Benjamin Mosley, Russell Dubuff, and Matthew Lee Cloyd, uh, were all students at Birmingham Southern College, and Matthew Cloyd transferred to the University of Alabama at Birmingham. But it has come out since they were arrested 
that they were practicing Satanists, and Cloyd had written a letter just last summer to one of the other boys saying that they must defy the very morals of Jesus. They burnt down eight churches total, and the situation is they were finally tracked down and caught, and they had told their friends and other people that they were practicing Satanists, and they tried to initiate several other students at Birmingham Southern College into their coven. They weren't taken too seriously. Now, uh, a big thing that I do in uh, my work is I demonstrate how the mainstream media will just slightly report on satanic or occult crime and very much downplay it as a contributing factor to what was happening in a particular criminal situation, which is what we see in the Alabama case. And this all ties into a greater scheme of Satanism, which does burn down and attack churches, which started in Norway in 1993 when a black metal Satanist musician named Varge Vikernes murdered his best friend. But before he murdered his best friend, burnt down several churches in Norway, uh, including the oldest church in Norway, which is called the Stave Church, because they are made of wood. They're not, they were not made of stone, so they burnt easily. And this follows a pattern of Satanists burning down churches worldwide. There's uh, several books out on the subject and even a documentary, I believe. On the Paracast, we're talking to William H. Kennedy. He's author of Satanic Crime, A Threat to the New Millennium. I'm going to ask you about the subtitle before we go on. Are you suggesting that a large number of crimes of this nature are caused by those who are practicing Satanists? Uh, yes. One thing I bring out in the book is I do case studies of criminals who are also Satanists, and I have chapters on Charles Manson, Richard Ramirez, Ricky Casso, Varge Vikernes, Klebold and Harris, Jeff Weiss, Andrea Volpe, Rodrigo Orias. And uh, these are all serial killers who are also practicing Satanists. And in many of these cases, the Satanic aspects were again downplayed in the mainstream media, especially with the case of Jeff Weiss, who was the boy on the Indian reservation who shot up his high school about six months ago. Now, he was an online Satanist and a practicing Satanist. But when the mainstream media reports came out, they really downplayed it. And, uh, yes, yeah, Satanism is downplayed as a threat. Now, the big threat that I look at in satanic crime is I take a look at the various secret societies that our politicians belong to, like the Skull and Bones, Bohemian Grove, and the Bilderbergers, which are three occult organizations made up of uh, very elite people. For example, the Skull and Bones Society, which is at Yale University, was founded in 1832. And in our last presidential election, the two candidates, John Kerry and George Bush, were both Skull and Bones members. Now, the Skull and Bones initiation ceremony for their final entrance into the society, they kneel before a devil figure, a figure dressed up as the anti-pope, and a figure dressed as the knight, and they pledge their allegiance to the Skull and Bones Society, and they are dubbed a knight of the order by Black Knight. Now, what we're looking at in their ritual, it's actually, that's sort of the infernal trinity, the opposite of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That would be Lucifer, Antichrist, and Satan in this ceremony. Now, I repeat again, both John Kerry and George Bush and George Bush's father all went through this very strange ritual at Yale University. You know, a part of it is they even lie in a coffin and drink blood or mock blood out of a skull. So these are people at the very 
upper end of the upper echelons of our society who belong to these very strange secret societies which are satanic in nature. And uh, one thing about the skull and bones that is never bought out, they actually changed their ritual around 75 years ago, I'm told. Originally, they knelt before a student dressed up as the devil with horns, and they were dubbed by the devil. Now, a lot of the students, I guess, found that disturbing, so they sort of watered down the ritual and brought in these two other figures. But it amounts to the same thing, and as, as shocking as it sounds, both Kerry and Bush went through this. And, you know, you ask yourself, the last election was, which skull and bonesman do you want in the White House? That was your choice. It really wasn't a Democrat or a Republican thing. And just to add to the controversy, Ralph Nader's lawyer, Donald Etna, who had a big hand in his campaign and who he might have made attorney general, was a skull and bonesman in the same class with George W. Bush at Yale. So that kind of throws the whole third-party perspective into, you know, a chaos, really. It's, it's really what skull and bonesman or what skull and bones controlled politician you want in the White House. And that's a big part I bring out in the end of Satanic Crime, which due out in about two weeks. One of the questions I have about this, Bill, I, I want to reconcile what we know to be Bush's actions in terms of creating public policy that seems to really favor what I would call religious fundamentalism, this sort of aversion to science and this turning towards faith being used as the foundation of political behavior. Reconcile for me his public display of belief in Christ, and he believes that Christ saved him. There was a whole thing with Billy Graham that came to visit. Reconcile that for me for a moment with this idea that he bowed before Satan at the Skull and Crossbones organization. I want to understand. As far as the Skull and Bones Society goes, they are loyal to each other first and foremost. And whatever mechanism of society they choose to use to gain power and influence for fellow members, it really does. They will use fundamental Christianity. They will use fundamentalist Islam. They will use anything which will bring more power and wealth to the small elite at the top of the globalist economic pyramid. As far as George W. Bush's manipulation of the fundamentalist right goes, that just makes perfect sense. These are the same people who are also backing and, to a certain degree, orchestrating his worldwide war against Islam and his murder of innocent women and children in Islamic countries as we. So uh, they are doing more the bidding of evil. They are causing violence in the world. They are incompetent, deliberately incompetent, I would say, in their reaction to the Katrina catastrophe. There was a, a definite pulling back on the part of the federal government. So it really doesn't matter if George W. Bush uses fundamental Christianity or the incompetent infrastructure of the United States. His ultimate concern is to consolidate wealth with a few global elites. And I should also point out he is also a member of the Bohemian Grove, which is out in California, which has an equally bizarre human sacrifice to an owl god as part of their ritual. So this is a very common thing for Bush. You know, it's not something he avoids. It's something he embraces and something he is incredibly secretive about. So we're also saying that Bohemian Society are safe. Uh, yes, definitely so. And uh, there's another person out there, uh, a filmmaker named Alex Jones, who made a film called Inside the Bohemian Grove. Mm -hmm. And he was able to sneak into their California compound and film their ceremony. And uh, there again, this is amazingly powerful elite people. They dress up like druids in Ku Klux Klan type outfits, and they have a bonfire before a giant owl god, and they do a human sacrifice. They call it the sacrifice of 
care. And this is a mock human sacrifice on a bonfire to this owl god. By destroying care, by burning it, they are actually destroying their own compassion for the, you know, other people. And there again, it's a, it's a consolidation of power with occult rituals as part and parcel of the elite power structure. And members of the Bohemian Grove are people like Walter Cronkite, Art Linkletter, Arnold Schwarzenegger. All of these people uh, take the time to belong to these very, very strange occult groups. And the fact that such powerful people belong to them and that there are occult rituals that are clearly and distinctly part of their whole practices, that should just sound alarm bells because they are actually performing satanic and pagan rituals and are claiming to be Christian publicly and running the world into economic and uh, warfare, a state of economic disaster and uh, warfare, it, it should be alarming to us all that they also, the same people doing this, belong to these strange groups. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast, and we're talking to William H. Kennedy, author of Satanic Crime, A Threat to the New Millennium, and you can learn more from WilliamKennedy.com. That's his website, which has links to that. WilliamHKennedy.com. Wait, forgive me. WilliamHKennedy.com. That is WilliamKennedy.com as the novelist who's sick of getting my email. <laughs> okay, we don't want that to happen, so it's WilliamHKennedy.com. David? Right. I'm curious about this filmmaker who went and supposedly, I guess, filmed these things, because you know what's strange about this, Bill? I have a very good friend who is a man of some means and who just happens to be a member of the Bohemian Society. He's gone to a number of these gatherings, and I've talked to him about this. This is a guy who, while he likes strange things, I don't think it would be in any way reasonable to categorize Satanists. And I've asked him, like, what goes on at these gatherings? And he suggested to me that if I knew anything about Robert Bly and about male bonding procedures that Robert Bly kind of espouses as a way for us to get back to our, to our real male roots, uh, basically uh, his description to me was, was that it was a fairly high-end version of a male bonding thing. And I, and I asked him about these, uh, you know, what does anything really weird go on? Does Do they do, like, rituals of some sort? And, he said, you know, people get really drunk at this thing, and they eat a lot of really strange, wild game. He said, as far as they kind of cultivate this air of mysticism in the group, almost as a game to see what people will say on the outside. So I'm fascinated to hear what you're saying about it. First of all, the fellow who went in there, the Bohemian Grove, the Bohemian Society itself, has confirmed that he did sneak into their compound and film their ceremony. Yeah. His name is Alex Jones, and he has a website on Infowars.com. And first of all, when you have people who have this kind of power and money, I mean, just consider the founder of Federal Express was a skull and bonesman, and uh, some of the richest elite in the United States are members of the Bohemian Grove. I mean, as far as this being a male-bonding kind of thing, well, certainly it is. I wouldn't dispute you on that at all. But when the people who, many of the people, not all, I'm not saying they're all bad, but many of the people who belong to the Bohemian Grove are also people who control vast amounts of wealth and have investments in things like, you know, Raytheon and companies who create a great deal of war and destruction on our planet. I mean, a lot of people I know, a good friend of mine is Danny Schechter, who is a, a famous reporter, an Emmy winner. I've known him my whole life. 
And he kind of downplays these rituals as well, as does Noam Chomsky. The problem I have with that is it just, it bothers me that people with this much money and who do this much damage to humanity bother with these rituals. And as far as it being bonding and drunken and all that, well, that would just further connect them and, and further bind them in their united effort to control wealth. And you really can't deny that the people who belong to the Bohemian Grove are not the power brokers. They certainly are. Henry Kissinger is a member. Ronald Reagan was a member. Richard Nixon was a member. So when you see people with this kind of power and this kind of money involved in these sorts of things, the fact that they minimize it and just try and pass it off as, you know, grown-up Boy Scouts or male bonding or whatever, those things are just the lower tier of it. The actual rituals they perform, uh, as I find quite disturbing, that they would, you know, engage in a mock human sacrifice, even if though every member doesn't take it seriously, they are bonding, and they are bonding towards the common cause of keeping wealth amongst fellow members. Let me ask you something. You mentioned pagan rituals before. Are you saying right. that everybody who practices a pagan-type religion is a Satanist? Uh, not at all. Most neo-pagans and Wiccans are solitary practitioners who perform different sorts of candle rituals, and they are harmless enough. But when you consider that Wicca, what we know as Wicca, was actually founded by uh, Gerald Gardner and another fellow named Aleister Crowley, who definitely was a Satanist, what we see here is not a, a, a great threat to society, but they're the very foundations of the modern Wicker movement have Aleister Crowley, the Satanist, as being kind of behind it. Now, the fact that uh, these people came to be practicing a continuation of an ancient goddess religion, well, that's really not so, because the primary promoter of Wicca was a woman named Sybil Leek, who I once spoke to on the phone many years ago, and Sybil Leake's father was also a good friend of Aleister Crowley's. And it's Sybil Leake who popularized witchcraft in the uh, Gardnerian sense as we know today. I mean, I know a lot of Wiccas, uh, Wiccans I know who I like very much. I know Janet Farrar. I met her at Seven Stars Books in Boston. Uh, I've met Laurie Cabot. And I'm not saying these people are particularly diabolical. However, uh, they're, they're very well, a lot of them aren't as knowledgeable about the Satanists who were involved in the formation of Wicca. But is every Wiccan a danger, dangerous person and a Satanist? Certainly not. Most of them are solitary practitioners who don't bother anyone. All right, let's move more into this. What about criminals in general, serial killers, etc., etc.? Are they all practicing Satanists, or do they even bother with religion in any way? Okay, I'm certainly... I never made the assertion that all serial killers are Satanists. What I am saying is that many serial killers are Satanists, and that includes people like Charles Manson. Just consider in the Manson clan, which is a chapter I have in Satanic Crime, uh, Susan Atkins and Bobby Beausoleil were both members of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan before they hooked up with Manson, and uh, Susan Atkins was in a strip show that uh, Anton LaVey had organized, and she would play the part of a vampire, and she would come out of a coffin and uh, strip, and she had a long red nail at the end of one finger. Now, two years after doing that, she was licking Sharon Tate's blood off of her fingers after hooking up with Manson. Now, you don't normally hear that Susan Atkins and Bobby Beausoleil were active members of the Church of Satan. It's another thing that's downplayed. And my point is, 
the mainstream media, I don't understand their downplaying of Satanism generally. Maybe you know, they don't take it seriously for some reason. Maybe they don't feel that it's relevant that it's just a few cultists uh, doing weird I, things. I mean, consider Richard Ramirez as well, the night stalker out in California. He had uh, attended a week of rituals with Anton LaVey before he went out on his spree of murder, and uh, Zena LaVey, Anton LaVey's daughter, showed up at his trial to see what he was going to say. It's very odd that she even showed up there. But you never hear about Richard Ramirez's, Ramirez's link, you know, direct link, to Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, in the same way you don't hear about Susan Atkins' connection to the Church of Satan. And I don't fully understand why ABC and CBS and CNN perpetually downplay the satanic aspects of uh, these crimes. Rodriguez Orias, he wound up going to prison and then to a mental institution, but they did determine he was a Satanist because when they found him over De Stefani's body, he was rubbing blood all over his face and singing hymns to Lucifer. Now, that was the number one story in Latin America for about three months, and it didn't even get any coverage up here. Nobody even heard about the case itself, uh, the murder of De Stefani in Santiago, Chile. Now, a week after that, at a church nearby uh, Santiago, Chile, another church was desecrated by Satanists. This one unreported, too. They painted uh, the walls with 666 all over the place, and they dumped uh, red paint all over the altar and uh, desecrated the host. And uh, this whole episode went unreported in the popular press, and I can send you guys some articles about it. Now, uh, it's odd because what you see here is the mainstream media actually reports these things in the United States, but they don't give them the attention they deserve on their one or two major outlets, which is things like CNN and Fox News. They usually brush over it. And uh, it's very disturbing because I have found a link now between a serial killer Satanist and one of these uh, bigger occult organizations. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. ask you about that in a moment but right now sure. you're in the powercast with gene steinberg and david biedney we're talking to william h kennedy author of satanic crime a threat to the new millennium he also has a website that's called williamhkennedy.com and could you tell us before we proceed here any further what else is on that site um okay on my williamhkennedy.com site um i have a lot of articles that i have written for various journals like uh New Dawn, which is out of Australia. I also write Sophia for Sophia, the Journal of Traditional Studies, which is um, edited by Sayed Hussan Nasser in Houston. Um, I have some articles from the former Dago Bears Revenge, which was the Da Vinci Code uh, vehicle before the Da Vinci Code came out. I have a lot of articles on the Da Vinci Code material. Um, I have a lot of taped interviews of myself on other shows. And I also do a, a small show myself called Sphinx Radio, and uh, which is similar to Paracast. So people can enjoy all of that stuff there, and my book will be on sale in about two weeks. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question here. Now, you on the Sphinx Radio information here, you mentioned a number of subjects here, and we understand about crime and the possibility that 
many of these criminals are practicing Satanists or at least have it in their hearts. But these other subjects you deal with, are they just totally unrelated? UFOs, conspiracy theories, paranormal, etc.? Uh, okay, I also do a daily newswire where, where I post 50 to 100 uh, paranormal and conspiracy-related articles as they come out per day. I have over a 1,000 articles a week I post, and uh, these deal with all those subjects like UFOs, conspiracy theory, um, cryptozoology. These are things that just interest me generally, and I post them for the general public because I always, after I go on shows, I always get emails for suggested articles. And I got a bit tired of emailing people all of the articles that I read, so I decided just to set up this newswire and put them up for everyone to see. I do read every article every day, and uh, it's just part of my general education as an occult historian. Okay, well, let's talk about occult. Is there anything with regard to the satanic crime that has any occult relationship? Because we're talking here mostly about physical people who maybe have different practices of worship who commit nasty things. But does that necessarily make it occult or paranormal? Okay, I make a distinction. When you're looking at a killer's motivations, now there are certainly serial killers who have no religious motivations, like Ted Bundy really didn't have any religious motivations, nor did many of the other serial killers, like the Iceman, who's now uh, the subject of a lot of uh, television documentaries. Not all, not all serial killers are Satanists. But it, there again, my criteria is I look for a metaphysical reason or a spiritual reason for the violence they commit. For example, Richard Ramirez said he did all of his murders for the love of Satan, and when he married one of his groupies in, in prison, he's doing life, he's on death row, he married one of his groupies and he refused to wear a gold ring at, at his wedding ceremony because he said Satanists don't wear rings. That's certainly someone who is motivated by occult or demonic forces or occult and demonic beliefs. There's no two ways about it. And this is something I focus on within the greater world of crime. Now, just consider, I'll, I'll throw this at you for consideration. I believe the Sicilian Mafia is an occult satanic organization because in 1989, the FBI here in Massachusetts actually taped one of their initiation ceremonies and it involved the drawing of blood. They would prick their fingers and do a blood ritual, and they would burn a holy card in a ceremony and pledge their allegiance to the Sicilian Mafia. Now, that has occult Luciferian overtones. It is a blood ritual, and it is the destruction of a Christian sacred object. Now, you won't see too much about this in books about the Mafia, because there again... These occult aspects are downplayed and seen as not very important. And I'm someone who sees them as being very important and just very fascinating to look at as, you know, phenomenologically. I mean, did you realize the Mafia had a ritual like that? I actually didn't. Uh, I didn't hear about that specifically. But when I, when I hear about that, I, it makes me think about something, Bill. And I want to put something forward to you that because of the fact that I'm, I'm Jewish, and I look at, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a practicing Jew. I've, I've become uh, more of a humanist than anything else. In trying to understand what motivates people, what motivates people to do good things and bad things, a topic that reoccurs all the time is extreme religious tendency. Now, it's interesting when you talk about blood rituals, and, and please help me out here. It seems like the Catholic Church has this ritual where one consumes the host. 
expect. Oh, sure. Right? I mean, so we had sure, Jesus sure. and it's, his it's disciples. It's a form of cannibalism. Sure. Well, well, I don't know if that's... Let's, let's, let's talk about, you know, the Last Supper, where Jesus reportedly said to his followers, you know, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to be inside of you. And you're going to consume, you eat of this, this matzah, this is going to be my flesh, and here is this wine, this is my blood. The, the, this, the notion of Satanism historically seems to have all of these Christian sources, and to sure, me, definitely. Like two ex- there are two extreme expressions of religious fundamentalism where, and here's the thing that I want to point out, I want your opinion about this, Sure. It's about human being externalizing the source of behavior, whether it's good behavior or bad behavior. It's about people not taking responsibility for what is essentially, and I don't want to boil it down to this, but it's essentially bad brain chemistry. When I hear about a serial murderer who is, you know, like Richard Ramirez, who did some really terrible things, and I've read something about his case, but you look at these guys and they say, oh, you know, Satan made me do it. Some of these guys say, God made me do it, and I wonder if we tally the number of people that Satanists have killed in the name of Satan versus the number of people who have been killed by, let's say, Christian fundamentalists in the name of God, which stack is going to be higher? Which objectively is more evil? Okay, first of all, I would say that Christianity certainly has been used and caused a great deal of damage to humanity. I don't deny that one single bit. How could I? History speaks out against it. Now, what I would say is, that you're certainly looking at very disturbed and sick, sick people. I don't yeah. deny that. Maybe these people are... Colin Wilson, the crime writer, believes many serial killers are actually brain damaged. And there could be some you know, truth to that. I'm just particularly fascinated by the fact that you know anyone would do violence in the name of religion. And uh, one of the people I interviewed on my show was uh, Mark Jurgensmeyer, who wrote a book, Terror in the Mind of God about people who murder other people in the name of God, and mm-hmm. I find them equally shocking and disturbing. You know, I'm not saying that a suicide bomber or someone who kills an abortionist or someone who does other people harm in the name of any God, I believe is getting their religion very, very wrong. Now, the difference is within Christianity, there's at least some counterbalance where you'll get the other side. Satanists who turn to crime, usually turn out to be very, very vicious and destructive as well. And it's not a matter of my, you know, tallying up which one is worse. They're both very, very bad. I just find it interesting that you will certainly hear more about Christian violence than you will about satanic violence in the mainstream media, and that's just a fact. You don't you don't hear that much about it. Even with these church arsonists the other day, I watched CNN, MSNBC, and uh, CBS last night, and none of them mentioned the Satanism, that these people are self-professed Satanists. They blamed it on alcohol. Well, alcohol does not make someone burn down eight churches. That's quite a disturbing thing to do, and it is just as disturbing if a Christian were to bomb an abortion clinic. That, you know, that frightens me. I don't like violence of any kind. But I'm really not tallying them. I'm just making observations. And as far as being critical of my own tradition, I wrote another book called uh, Lucifer's Law, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church, and Mm -hmm. I focused on the fact that the bishops within the Roman Catholic Church protected pedophile priests who were also Satanists. So uh, 
it's not that I'm picking on Satanists or Wiccans or anything. My first book I picked on my own tradition, which I'm from a Roman Catholic background, and I really demonstrated that the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church has been infiltrated by pretty much perverts who let pedophiles run around and rape children. I've met and talked to victims who've been raped by priests who are also into occult rituals. And uh, we could do another show on that, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a name of uh, Father Bernard Lane and uh, Father Paul Shanley and um, Father Sean Fortune in Ireland were all raping children, performing daily as Catholic priests, and they were also involved with occultism. So this is something we see within Christianity. And uh, the Birmingham Southern College, where they went to, is actually a Methodist college, you know? And uh, the BTK serial killer who was just caught was the uh, head of his Lutheran church, and he claims to be possessed by a demon. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, and we're talking right now with William H. Kennedy. He is author of, and this is a main focus of our discussion, although it's getting to other areas, Satanic Crime. And if you go to WilliamHKennedy.com, you'll learn more about that book, other books, and about his interests in a host of other subjects. David, I think you're kind of champing at the bit here to talk further about some of these subjects, so why don't you go ahead? To me, Gene, it, what's sad about it, and I look at something like the Second World War, the genocide, and then we look at genocide that's happened in more recent times, you know, the whole Pol Pot nightmare. And it just, it, it's interesting, well, not interesting, it's disturbing to me that there's a continuation in human nature to try to pass blame, to try to basically source behavior to external influences, and um, while I appreciate, I totally appreciate what Bill is saying, and I think he's drawing some interesting uh, uh, facts out of this situation. I think that I, I, I'm interested to know why the mainstream media would downplay these relationships with Satanism and these extreme killers or these people who are arsonists or whatever. But ultimately, I wonder if it doesn't all come down to bad upbringing. I mean, basically, you look at serial killers. I mean. This Oliver Stone movie, Natural Born Killers, which the year it came out, it was disparaged by critics. But it made it was actually a fascinating movie. And one of the the main points it was trying to make was that this mentality of a serial killer, of a murderer, really is a direct result of abusive childhoods where they've got abusive parents, very bad up that essentially poisons the well. And when we look at it's interesting how Bill brings up this. I guess Bill wrote a whole book about Satanism in the Christian world, in the Catholic Church. And I think about this being an ex a reaction to the repression and fundamentalism of, of the whole context. So I'm wondering, is you know, does it really come down to the old Star Wars, good versus evil, that there is this thing called God and then there's this fallen angel called Satan? Because in the Catholic religion, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, Satan was one of God's closest angels that fell from grace and then basically wanted to have retribution against God and was always trying to get back to God's love. And I think about also, and I think, 
Is this about God? Is this about Satan? Or is it about human beings' insecurities? What's your thoughts on that, Bill? Well, certainly those are all contributing factors. Now, just from being neutral and objective, which is certainly not anything anyone can be totally, but it's something we aim for, um, those other subjects are, are, are certainly important. What I find a bit disturbing, though, is when uh, what you say might be very true for individual serial killers, but when you look at Klebold and Harris or these three people in Alabama, are all of the? Uh, uh, w- would this mean that they were all had bad childhoods and banded together to to do this damage? Or you know that just opens up a lot more questions for me. Uh, I will say it. it if they do gravitate towards occultism and Satanism and perform crimes, they certainly give the occultism and Satanism consideration in what they do. And that's what I'm really fascinated with. Now, as far as all these people having bad childhoods, from my own studies, and I've talked to other people like Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote Helter Skelter, and uh, Philip Carlo, who wrote The Night Stalker, what we're really discovering people in the true crime movement is that when you look at these, you'll get everything under the sun as far as these people's childhoods go. You know, you'll have horrible childhoods like Charles Manson and Susan Atkins. I bring that out in my book. Their childhoods were, were horrible. But you have other people like uh, Klebold and Harris, whose parents seem to be actually very good and nice people, and they really can't find anything wrong. So... If I could narrow it down to what you're saying, that would be, I'd prefer that, but that's really not what you see when you look, take a bird's eye view of the subject. You see all sorts of uh, uh, childhoods and all sorts of problems and all sorts of blessings. So it's really hard to narrow it down to it. And I used to say that myself, but the facts don't bear that out. So tell me more about why you think the media then is trying to downplay or, or, or just completely ignores this element in these crimes? Well, I mean, you must have a theory about this, right? Well, I certainly do. Um, I first want to say that there was a satanic panic in the 1980s, and innocent people like the Emerald family here in Massachusetts, where I'm from, who are from the next city over, went to prison under false charges of satanic ritual abuse. And I certainly acknowledge the fact that there were people wrongfully sent to prison for false accusations of satanic ritual abuse wherein various therapists basically guided the children into saying things that didn't happen, catching on to their fantasy aspects. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. And I believe a big part of the media's impetus for avoiding reporting on satanic and occult elements is to avoid doing that again, which is a very important thing. But the problem is when a lot of these cases turned out to be a false memory syndrome type incidences, the media and even the courts threw the baby out with the bathwater and that they uh, deliberately avoid even mentioning occult or satanic rituals. And as I say, the BTK killer himself says he's possessed by a devil, but you don't hear uh, all that much about it in, in the mainstream press. And I it just to shorten it, it's just to avoid another satanic panic. But the problem is, do you, you know, a lot of people were wrongly sent to prison for murder, and a lot of people were wrongly sent to prison for embezzlement, and a lot of people were wrongly sent to prison for robbery. Do you, like, not try any more murderers or robbers or embezzlers because some were sent to prison wrongfully? Uh, That's a big issue I'm kind of wrestling with myself. I certainly don't want to see people sent to jail 
on flights of fancy, but I don't want this material completely ignored because it has uh, psychological and sociological implications, which in the future could prevent these sorts of things from happening. You know, why do abused children turn to Satanism and occultism? That's a very good question. Why do they bother with it? Why do some bother with it and some don't? You see, I'm, I'm generating more questions than answers, and I think that's a very healthy thing to do. And I like talking to uh, guys like you who have a different perspective. Well, we're just trying to get to some understanding here, Bill. And, and it's, you know, when you talk about why do people turn to some of the stuff, I think it's for the same reasons that some people don't listen to disco music, they listen to heavy metal. You know, if I had to choose between the Bee Gees and Black Sabbath, I'm likely to choose Black Sabbath because I like the sound of electric guitars. Do I listen to Black Sabbath? When I was listening to Black Sabbath when I was younger, did I think, ooh, this is, I'm, I'm kind of uh, wash, letting the dark side wash over me and it makes me feel empowered. No, I just like Tony Iommi's guitar riffs. I mean, that, that was really the whole foundation of it. it. You know, I have no problem with that whatsoever, and I think that people can listen to whatever sort of music they like, mm -hmm. but um, I just, I think that within the perspective when you see someone like Barge Vikanus murdering his best friend and burning churches down, well, I mean, I'll give you an example individual. of someone who didn't right. like black metal. Abby Hoffman went to a Black Sabbath con uh, concert in 1973, and he came out and he said, they represent everything that went wrong with the 60s. Now, is Abby Hoffman like an anti-black heavy metal person? No, a lot of people no. in heavy metal probably like Abby Hoffman, but he didn't like them. So it's not all just like fundamentalists or Catholics going after you know black metal music and demonizing. Right. A lot of people from society don't like it, including Abby Hoffman. All right, I think that really covers it. Thank you very much. On the Paracast, you've heard William H. Kennedy, author of Satanic Crime, A Threat to the New Millennium. And you can find more at WilliamHKennedy.com. That's WilliamHKennedy.com. Don't forget the H. And is the book also available uh, from Amazon and other sources? It will be up uh, in about two weeks on my site, and it will also be up on Amazon a few weeks after that. And it will be uh, eight ninety five. Okay. plus shipping <laughs> in about two weeks, uh, early April 2006. Okay, thanks so much for joining us. Very good. Thank you, guys. That was an excellent conversation. Thanks, Bill. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a great and science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandney. You never know what's going to happen next. Well, you see, I'm glad to know that there are other people that potentially think that these crazy people might be affected by their childhoods and not some 
satanic force that's floating around the air. And it's good to know that our guests sort of confirm that there are other people who clearly have this opinion. So I'm still on the fence about this one, Gene. We're not going to talk, by the way, right now about hairy white lobsters. We're going to talk about non-hairy UFOs next with Bill Konkoleski. That sounds good. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. So Bill, how did you first get interested in looking for UFOs? Well, interesting as it is, my very, very first memory in life is um, actually of something pretty peculiar. Um, And that was, I was two years old. I was still in a crib at that time. And um, I was laying there, it was night, and a little man came into my room and was staring down at the crib um, right at me, and I was completely awake. I didn't wake up into this, and I was crying bloody murder for my parents to come, and they were saying, it's okay, just go back to sleep, just go back to sleep, as this little man um, was looking down at me, and he just uh, simply walked out of the room. And this isn't something that came back to me several years later. This is something that's always been with me, this memory. And uh, as the years rolled on, other unusual things were happening to me. And, you know, I'd certainly put myself in the category, you know, of an experiencer. But as these weird things kept happening to me, you know, in my young life, there really wasn't that context to look for answers to this type of weird stuff happening. And then um, when I was in my late teens, uh, I'm 35 now, I, when I was in my late teens, I, I got a copy of uh, Whitley Strieber's Communion. And as I started to read through the book, I'm like, yes, that happened to me, yes, you know, check, check, check. And it was a real epiphany. And so I went looking for other people that were investigating the UFO phenomena or into the UFO phenomena, which ultimately drew me to the Mutual UFO Network where I've been a member since the early 90s. And you're in the PowerCast. William Konkoleski, he is the state director for Michigan for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. And as we see, he's had a number of unusual experiences. Now, I want to say this. You're one of the younger guests we've actually had on the show. And what seems to be happening here is more and more people seem to be of the older generation. We're not seeing lots and lots of young people get involved in looking at these subjects. Do you have any feeling as to why? Yeah, um, there are some definitely strong opinions I have. One is, yeah, definitely I agree. When you go to any of our local MUFON meetings or the, the annual convention, the MUFON Symposium, there's definitely what they call the graying of the organization. And I think a good deal of it is today with the Internet, 
you know, you're sitting there and you say, you know, I'm really interested in UFOs. And what do you do? You don't say, I wonder if there's a group out there that, you know, I can meet with to discuss this. You say, you know, I wonder what happens when I type in UFO on, you know, on the search engine on my computer. And suddenly you're overwhelmed with this UFO information and you pretty much look at whatever you want to look at and then say, well, that was, you know, that was interesting. Now I've learned about UFOs. I think the Internet has made it so very easy for information on demand or sometimes and many times misinformation on demand that it really prevents people from wanting to go out and actually meet other flesh and blood people that want to discuss the subject. And another thing, too, about there not being a lot of involvement from the younger side of America in particular is any of the lodges that have been around historically, we're talking, you know, the Elks, uh, you know, the the uh, Knights of Columbus, things like that, um, the Odd Fellows, any of these groups, um, you find that, you know, these are basically older groups. There isn't, you know, a nonprofit organization out there even now today that isn't seeing the same type of thing where just people aren't getting involved, period, anymore. That's probably also very true for computer user groups as well, Bill, uh, where you used to see a lot of active participation, and a lot of that moved online. And in terms of even creating communities online, a lot of the, the, the gathering is happening in virtual spaces. So we've definitely seen that in organizations that, are, that, are, that tend to attract large numbers of people. And it's affected trade shows. It's affected every aspect of any kind of public participation, organizational kind of a event. And another thing, when I look at, when you go online and say you are actually seeking out um, who to report a UFO to, um, any website that you see out there, you're not sure if it's an organization more than 3,000 strong, like, you know, the Mutual UFO Network, or a couple guys, you know, in their basement. And, you know, somebody who has good web design skills can really go a long way in impressing someone that they're a legitimate organization. Well, there is an organization online called the National UFO Reporting Center that seems mm -hmm. um, pretty comprehensive, and they seem to have a pretty large database of uh, even current sightings. I mean, have you had any experience with that, Bill? Uh, with with uh, dealing with the, the National, National UFO, UFO Reporting, Reporting Center? Center? Yeah, I've had an opportunity uh, to meet uh, Peter Davenport at one of the uh, Mutual UFO Network symposiums. And, yeah, he's a, a great guy, and he definitely is, <laughs> I would say, probably the hardest working man in ufology. He's, you know, he's done a really wonderful service in collecting all of this information. Unfortunately, um, with as limited, you know, of resources as he has, I mean, they aren't really an investigative arm. Um, like MUFON is, but they, you know, definitely catalog many more reports um, at this time anyway than, than MUFON does. In fact, one of the interesting things that MUFON and New Fork do together is they uh, create something called the UFO weather map, which is every month um, they collect all the UFO sightings from the two groups um, and actually post it online. Uh, if you go to MUFON.com, uh, you can check out that month's, uh, or not that month's, but a previous month's weather map to see just the volume of UFO sightings across the country. Okay. It's really fascinating. I've looked at that map quite a bit, and uh, there seems to be a good amount of activity really going on. Yeah, and you hear people say, sometimes at least I do, are there really any as many sightings as there used to be, or is that really still going on? 
And with a tool like the weather map, you can say, yeah, check out this month, check out yeah. the month before, and check out the month before that. And you see that this isn't just something that happens in small ways. This is happening perpetually. You know, right now while we're talking, somebody's probably out there seeing a UFO somewhere. Well, call us up. <laughs> Seriously, let me ask you a fast question here, Bill, before we progress. Now, mm -hmm. the modern UFO sighting era started in the 1940s, although a lot of people collected sightings before then. Have we learned all that much in the past 60 or some odd years about the subject? It seems that we're all still talking about essentially the same things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It seems that instead of narrowing down the possibilities of what it could be, people are coming up with new theories that are valid and worth discussing. And it seems like the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. That gets to be rather difficult. So basically, maybe we don't know a lot of what's going on. That 60 years hasn't given us any more information than we had maybe back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Back at that time, um, there really, the, the entity side of uh, things wasn't really being discussed as much. Uh, I mean, if you look back at, say, World War II and the Foo Fighters, it was either these lights or these discs flying around. And although Roswell happened in 47, uh, really there wasn't any public discussion of uh, bodies being associated with it until I think the late 1970s when Stan Friedman really started to look into it. And I think that, I mean, we have more to talk about now than we did back then and more people being able to get their story out. But I really think that it just allows you to see how very deeply complex the whole phenomena is and how nearly impossible or probably impossible it is to, to really tag anything definitive about it. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. In the Faracasts, we're talking to Bill Konkoleski. He's the state director for Michigan for the Mutual UFO Network. If you go to MUFON.com, you can learn more about that organization, about the things that he does. Okay, let's look over the various case histories. One thing that we found, that I experienced anyway, is that in the 60s and maybe 70s, when you had reports of people getting up close and personal with possible aliens, they were taken less seriously, that you could approach a UFO from a few dozen yards in terms of your sighting, but as soon as you got too close, the believability quotient went out the window. I'm posing, I'm posing a, a question, I'm just kind of thinking, do you agree with me on this? In my experience, yeah, I would say that um, as time has gone by, people have taken the, uh, the entity side of it a bit more credible, sure. All right, well, as far as entities, then, are we seeing a consistent type of creature, or are they all over the map? What? There is, there is a, a limited set of, of uh, characters that you'll find uh, rather repeatedly. There are the greys, um, a small uh, group of uh, uh, entities that probably, uh, if I had to, to say something fairly consistent about the, what's been reported about them, um, about three feet tall, large almond-shaped eyes, uh, very dark eyes, and um, very thin, hairless. And then there are also reports of uh, praying mantis-type 
entities, uh, much taller, taller than people in most cases, um, large bug eyes, looking very much, again, like I said, like a praying mantis. Or there are people that say that they've seen a reptilian sort of a race, um, lizard-like looking uh, entities, or even some people that say they see what look to be like a beautiful Nordic people like with blonde hair, very beautiful people. The, uh, these different types of entities are sometimes seen in conjunction with each other, sometimes by themselves, and certainly other types of entities are seen on occasion, but uh, when, when you look at uh, the vast majority of cases, these are the types of entities that are being seen. So yeah, the iconic image has become the, the gray with the big black eyes, and the thing is, Bill, uh, that it you know the movies and... Uh, science fiction have helped ingrain this image, this iconic image of the gray in the, I think the sort of the, the mass media, things like Close Encounters of the Third Kind really, you know, created kind of a, a sense of awareness of this whole topic. But like what you're describing, the praying mantis creature, the small grays, I mean, these were clearly portrayed in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But I start to wonder, is this affecting people's perceptions? Are, are some of the stories coming out of people literally having dreamlike experiences that draw upon these, um, you know, sort of mass media sources? Or, or was that, for example, that movie influenced by the reports that had existed up to that point? Well, I would say, uh, first of all, the, the movie was influenced by something that was already in existence. If you look at Betty and Barney Hill um, from 1961, they essentially reported just the very type of entity that you see in Close Encounters. Um, I myself, with my personal experiences, had seen Graves before Close Encounters came out. And I had seen a mantis-type being several years later um, before that was popular in the literature. Whether people today, after having been so inundated in the culture that we have with seeing the gray everywhere in TV commercials, etc., that when they have some sort of unusual experience, that uh, they interpret what's happening to them as being the result of these old gray guys or whatever. I can't say that I guess I absolutely rule that out. Um, I know recently uh, Harvard researcher Susan Clancy has been trying to say that essentially the entire abduction phenomena is the result of a combination of sleep paralysis um, and the, the wild lucid dreams people have at that point or um, also uh, being a fantasy-prone personality. And she also downs hypnosis as, as a tool um, to, re, you know, to bring out memories. And I have to say, I've actually been hypnotized several times, and there are some things that came out under hypnosis. For example, um, the very first time I was hypnotized was about that experience I had just mentioned a moment ago when I was two. And when I was under hypnosis, um, a couple of things I resisted under hypnosis. For example, when I was in my crib under hypnosis, I saw my crib as having a flat board at the bottom of the crib. When I remembered that my crib had bars all the way around it, if you're following me. So I went under hypnosis saying, how come under hypnosis my crib doesn't have bars all the way around when I know it has bars all the way around? While I'm under hypnosis, I'm actually seeing a flat board at the foot of my crib. Well, when I got out of hypnosis and I went home and I had a conversation with my mother, she said, your crib did, in fact, have a flat board at the bottom. Hmm. And she said, it's still up in the attic and you can take a look at it. So 
So while I was under hypnosis, I was seeing things correctly that I thought were incorrect. Hypnosis was actually showing me the way things really were rather than the way I wanted them to be. Okay, then we go to the next step of the question, which is, are we seeing the greys, the praying mantis-type creatures, the Nordics, whatever they are, as they really are, or is there some kind of subjective interpretation that's going on between us and the actual experience? I believe that uh, the, the way that I had uh, described them a moment ago, their classic appearance, is act their actual appearance, at least how they would manifest themselves physically, if you want to take the conversation down that route. But what they tend to do is they will, when they come to somebody um, and they, a person has this experience, they will implant screen memories in the abductee, so sort of wash their memory out. So when a person remembers afterwards, sometimes instead of seeing a little gray, um, they'll think, wow, I was visited by an owl last night, or there were some deer at my window, or even a situation where some people will say that they were visited by uh, the spirits of dead relatives, yet when they go under regression, these masks are taken off and these, you know, grays appear. Why do you think this is happening, Bill? I mean, let's, and, and I'm going to assume here that, you know, some amount, some percentage of what people perceive to be abduction experiences are indeed of creations of their minds. But just like UFO encounters and, and viewings, we have to assume that if you take, uh, you know, all the all of the episodes, a hundred percent, there's got to be one or two percent that really cannot be explained by conventional methodologies. So let's say that one or two percent of abduction experiences, just just for argument's sake, one or two percent are real. So my question to you is, why, well, this is a big question, but why would these creatures be interacting with us? What, what's in it for them? Well, I think that uh, if you look at people today, and this is, you know, just my theory, obviously, because um, I'm not on their planning board. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> yeah, you, you might be. You might be a consultant, you don't know it. Right. At least they should send you the check. <laughs> or whatever they use my for money over there, you know. Diamonds. It would be diamonds, just okay. like the Earth sits still. <laughs> uh, yeah, my my theory is that um, much like uh, people, we get excited about finding new species, and I think that they, you know, are out there. I I don't know how many different species there are, but if there's one other planet out there with intelligent life, there's probably many, many. And I think it's just you know part of it is the excitement that there is other life, feeling connected with somebody or something, you know, somewhere else on the other side of the galaxy, you know, is, is a pretty exciting thing. Now, that they would they look at us as their equals, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I do think that there is just that sort of sense of adventure that's, you know, even innate in, you know, everybody here uh, on Earth that, uh, you know, that sort of exploration, what's out there, you know, they come to a, our planet, they see that there's life there you know, life here. They wonder what it's about. They don't want to interrupt the flow of things because they probably understand that if they made themselves visible in today's environment, there'd probably be wide-scale rioting everywhere and the whole planet would just, you know, descend into chaos or whatever. So I think they're doing sort of the responsible thing and interacting with us on a level so that it won't um, adversely affect our culture. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Bill Konkoleski, the state director of the Michigan chapter for the Mutual UFO Network. That's MUFON, M-U-F-O-N dot com, if you want to find out more. As a state director, I assume you're the guy that if things happen in Michigan, you have to be called out to get some information to investigate the sighting. So can you give us maybe a, a couple of recent case histories, things that are significant enough in detail and proof to say, you know what, no matter what you think, what you say, this shows something real is going on. And if I could say um, our, our state site, if you want to go to Michigan state site, is org. Okay. Um, now, when I look at something that's significant, I mean, I could give you some interesting details of something that happened not too long ago. If you want something that I think uh, fits the bill as being a pretty overwhelmingly significant, March of uh, it happens to be a big year, a big month in terms of uh, Michigan ufology. Forty years ago was the big Hillsdale case, and in 94, which would, I feel, I mean, still think be pretty recently. There was a big case uh, out in Grand Rapids area, Michigan, and Holland area, where more than 300 people saw uh, UFOs. It was tracked by the National Weather uh, Service radar, in fact, and, of course, included in that group were police officers. Uh, there are several calls into 911, and uh, people were seeing Lights just absolutely all over the sky in uh, circular formations and triangle formations and cross formations. And when you have a level of witnesses in the hundreds, you know, that's certainly significant. A couple of years ago, um, in September of 2004, there was a, a really big uh, sighting, too. Several people were calling into the local radio station saying that they saw lights around the Detroit Metro Airport. And when Detroit Metro Airport was contacted, they said that their radar, in fact, um, wasn't picking anything up. Interestingly, there was a gentleman um, in Highland, Michigan, who had seen the same night as all of these lights. He said he saw a gigantic triangle in the sky. He said it was about the size of a stadium, just absolutely huge. Interestingly, he was the only person that reported this. The next day, he had an even more interesting thing to say. He said the very following day that uh, in the afternoon, he was waking up from a nap. He saw something about the size of a car, a wedge-shaped craft, flying over the trees just on the outside of his property. And when he went downstairs, the thing had actually landed in his backyard and was parked there for about an hour. He didn't want to take any pictures of it because he thought that uh, if the thing knew he was taking a picture of it, uh, it might get upset. He didn't want to uh, call the police because he thought by the time they get there, the thing would be gone and they, they would think he was crazy. But uh, he was definitely serious. He was definitely a credible witness saying that this thing parked in his backyard for an hour before it slowly lifted off and took off into the sky. He didn't try calling anybody? No. Not even he, like a neighbor? And uh, Sure, that's, that's very interesting, but... I think he just was so overwhelmed by the experience. That's the impression that I got. That He did make a sketch of it, and he said he was drawing it while it was back there, but uh, he didn't know what it would do if he tried to, to reach anybody. So he sort of froze up from fear. It sounds that way. Hmm. And that makes it difficult. That doesn't help. But that's also the situation. The other aspect of evidence is the quality. Now, we see lots of photos through the years of alleged 
craft in the sky. But most of it can be explained if you were going to fake a photo, these pictures wouldn't pass muster. We're not really getting those high-quality photos that proof positive alien craft. There's no other explanation. Is there a reason for this? Maybe they don't want to be photographed? I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to think that they would care whether or not they were photographed, but, yeah, certainly enough, um, you don't see these, these good quality pictures of them. It could be, I, I don't know that a lot of people have said it was, you know, parked right there, I took a picture of it, and now in the, you know, the film it's gone. Uh, mostly people that have this video, that have these pictures, are saying pretty much what's on the film is, is what they took. But, yeah, the opportunities just seem so very rare for people to actually take these pictures. Now, I've heard in several cases where people said it was the most beautiful thing, this, you know, this giant ball of dazzling light, you know, was just over my house, and it was there for the longest time. And, you know, darn it, I forgot to get my camera. I do hear that uh, on a number of occasions where it people will just it'll slip their mind to, to, to capture it on film. And you would expect this to be a situation where, with the proliferation of things like digital cameras and camcorders, we would expect to be seeing more photos and more footage, not less. But what I will say, Bill, is that, and I brought this up on the show before, in the last 15 years, there's been quite a bit of a flap down in Mexico City. And to my understanding, there actually is a pretty decent amount of photographic and video evidence evidence that's been shot down there because of the large number of sightings and the fact that people do have this technology. A question to you about this, and this is going to tie into something that's going to come up, I think, on our next show. What collaborations does MUFON have with the international community? I mean, is there a MUFON uh, group that's looking into what's going on down in Mexico City? Well, MUFON is itself an international organization, and we definitely have memberships outside uh, of the country. Um, mm -hmm. Now, that that I'm aware, I'm not sure of any particular um, MUFON individuals that are down in Mexico. I know certainly that uh, Dr. Bruce Maccabee looks at all the, the best video footage that comes in from around the world, which includes you know, some of the material that comes in from Mexico and, you know, and dissects whether or not he thinks it's valid or not. Does MUFON put any of this stuff up on their website? I mean, let's say you guys are getting photographs and you are getting video. Are you making of this available? I, I didn't see any of this on the MUFON website. What yeah, currently I, yeah, currently I'm not sure um, if there are any photographs up there. I actually don't believe there are any. Is any of that evidence right now at the MUFON site? Um, we, do, we do have our reports that we put up and, of course, the weather map. So you're right. I don't. I'm not aware of any uh, actual photographic evidence. Now, uh, Dr. Moose Maccabee does have a website where he does show some of these pictures, and he does give the you know his opinions on it. I'm not sure what his uh, website is, but if you look his name up in Google, I'm sure that you'll be able to find his website. It's Dr. Bruce Maccabee. Mm -hmm. Okay, and as we talk, David's looking for it. Entered 
And I should tell everybody, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney talking to William Konkoleski. He is the state director for Michigan chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. Go to MUFON or MUFON.com to learn more about the organization and all the stuff it's done over the years to get a handle on what UFOs are all about. You would think, though, that after all these decades, there would be some public official acceptance. Why has UFOs, why has the subject stayed on the fringes for so long? Why don't we know more about what's going on? Why is there not more official acceptance, especially because of the fact that the thing just persists? Um, when you say official, do you mean public acceptance or like governmental acceptance? I think a combination of both. Both, yeah, both. In terms of of, of governmental acceptance, uh, it, it could be very much the case that there are parts of government that know that the phenomena is real. They have better evidence than anybody, and they're keeping that. It's the possibility, and I think in a situation like that, they would choose not to panic. Uh, the, the general public um, unnecessarily because things are moving along pretty smoothly now even though we are having a high level of sightings and so as long as they can keep things status quo there isn't a real great need for them to want to you know upset the apple cart in terms of public acceptance I think that really people are just so very 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 busy in today's world that they don't have time to accept the possibility of life elsewhere into their, you know, day-to-day living when their day-to-day living is so very busy already. If they were to say, okay, sure, there's aliens coming here from, you know, another world, that, you know, that doesn't change that I have to be here at 9 a.m., I have to be here at noon, i got to be here at 5 a.m., i got to be here at 8 p.m., and then tomorrow, you know, my calendar is fully booked, too. They still have to pay their mortgages. Yep. <laughs> the space people are not going to pay their mortgages, unfortunately. <laughs> well, maybe Actually, they do. Well, yeah, they, they ultimately, they, someone's got to pay the bills. I mean, they've got, they must have a hell of an electricity bill. I'm actually looking here on the web, guys, and um, I did find uh, Bruce McAbee's page, and he's tied to a website called ufoevidence.org. And they have uh, a bunch of stuff that's online. Some of it looks like some old pictures and some old footage that I've already seen. I'm not going to take the time now to look through it in depth. But there is some stuff online, and it's a ufoevidence.org. Okay, so we'll make a note of that to look over the stuff that he has. Now, early in our interview, you mentioned Roswell. Now, over the years, even among people who accept the possibility of UFOs, Roswell has been very controversial. So I gather, at least from what you say, that you do accept it as a reality that UFOs, one or more UFOs, crashed in the New Mexico desert and that maybe they recovered the craft, that maybe they recovered the beings that were in that craft. Yeah, I I guess I'd be in that boat. I mean, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Nick Redfern, put out a book to the contrary just last year saying that it was experimental U.S. aircraft. And he made a, a fairly interesting argument for that. But, uh, yeah, I guess I'd still be in the UFO boat, sure. Okay. Well, let's take a look at Roswell then. Now, your friend put out this book, but you obviously still accept the reality. What are the compelling pieces of evidence that say, yes, Roswell really happened? When you look at the the very day and, and, and shortly the days after what happened, it was, you know, they had come out and said there was a, a crash disc that, you know, happened out there in the desert. 
Now, that's not the, the kind of thing that comes out in the media. Basically, what comes out in the media is the least amount of information anyone would need to know that's really pushing the panic button if they, you know, reported something like that. That's a big deal to say that a crashed saucer happened. And then the type of flimsy things that you saw about it in, in the following days with the, um, the ripped-up uh, sort of aluminum foil, those pictures, it really... I think, tends to insult the intelligence of people to say, okay, you know, this was, you know, this crashed, and then afterwards, this is what we have to say that, in fact, it was a weather balloon. And then years later, you know, for years to deny that there was any sort of bodies associated with the crash, and then come the 1990s, they say, yeah, okay, there were bodies, but they were actually crash test dummies. And these and these crash test dummies that they were saying were at the scene were actually not even produced till six years after the crash. So I think one of the biggest things to look at for evidence of its reality is how badly they've covered it up. The absurd things they've used to say that it didn't actually happen. Well, the fact they keep bringing it up, um, we talked about an earlier show, the fact that uh, the Air Force just in recent years has brought up yet another explanation of the whole episode, and I read about it in the New York Times. It seems a little odd that they'd still be addressing this all these years later if something really didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. They keep uh, they keep trying to deny it, and the, the evidence is absurd. If they had really good, strong evidence to deny it, then it would be one thing, but to say, and I, I point to the crash test dummies again, because I think they're the real poster child of this, why say that it was these crash test dummies that weren't even built yet. Why even address the bodies? You know, they should have just simply denied that there was anything to do with bodies at all. Well, that would mean, of course, that they accept the fact that people believe bodies were recovered, that there may be compelling evidence for that, and maybe that's why they're giving you the story. But that certainly raises even more questions. Or maybe the they figure that the denial of the week, month, or year club would just confuse everybody about what's really happening or what really happened, and that would just uh, make the whole thing go away. <laughs> well, let's look at the government in general. Do you think the government really has, number one, crash UFOs on ice at Area 51 or Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or whatever? Do you think that the government has access to alien technology? Let's go into the book The Day After Roswell, where the late Philip Corso said that some of the elements of our technology came from reverse engineering alien achievements. What do you think? I know, and this is going to sound kind of strange, I know somebody who is incredibly credible, incredibly reliable, has told me that they were told by somebody that actually worked at Area 51 that they had seen uh, disks not only in some sort of hangar but also levitating off the ground at actually Area 51 itself. And the person, you know, that told me this, I mean, here I am telling you guys, and it's a one step further removed, but from what I've heard, I have no reason to doubt my, my sources when I hear this. And when I look at some of the things, when you talk about the, the, the day after Roswell, I, I do think that it is an interesting book. I don't know that I necessarily have a strong opinion about, uh, you know, that as being supportive evidence that we've reversed engineered some things. But if the government is hiding something like this, when I say government, I don't mean, say, the president even or any of the elected officials. My thinking is that if there is somebody that's overseeing this, it's not going to be somebody that's going to be up for re-election or possibly when they're not re-elected, 
they're free to go out and tell their story. This is going to be somebody who's able to be sworn to secrecy for life and be involved in the project long term so that they don't have to involve a lot of people, just a very few committed people. So I do think that it's very possible that there are some sort of black budget areas of the government that do oversee, you know, this exotic technology that I do think to some extent is in the hands of the government, sure. I'm not a huge conspiracy guy. You know, I, I'm not looking, you know, under every rock, you know, to, to see where the government may actually be hiding evidence. So I do think that it's it's very likely that it is occurring. Uh, while we've been talking, I've been looking at a number of the pictures that are on UFO evidence. They actually do organize them chronologically. And there's, I, I'm shocked, there's actually a bunch of recent stuff from the last couple of years or a bunch of photographs that are... Uh, I'm going to be bringing it to Photoshop later today to see if there are any wires. <laughs> there's some very interesting <laughs> stuff online. So, you know, it, there's definitely there's definitely something going on, guys. That's why we're here talking about it, whether the government has any recover technology. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm on the fence about Roswell. I'm not sure what really happened there. But what I do know, as I said before, there's some number of these sightings that, that don't make any logical sense that uh, to me really are unidentified and um, you know the the idea that something like this is going on it's enough to keep me motivated and wanting to talk to people like Bill about this well that answers uh, quite a few questions right there <laughs> indeed it does alright one more time before we let you go Bill can you kind of tell us again about MUFON about whether this it may be the answer to this mystery that this organization you think can solve it or just publish information and for those who want more information about what you do and what the organization does tell us where to get more sure um MUFON is the world's largest civilian uh, research organization for ufos when somebody reports a ufo um and they're or are looking for some place to report a ufo MUFON is definitely the place to do it we have presence, you know, all across America and in some other countries, as I mentioned before, and if you want your UFO investigated, um, if you contact MUFON basically by going to MUFON.com and uh, going to the report form and making a, you know, a sighting report, somebody will contact you. There's probably somebody within a few miles of you that's a member of MUFON that come up, can come out or call you or email you to discuss your UFO sighting, and I think Certainly the value of the Mutual UFO Network is that we are a network. We, you know, we share the information. We're building a case, just as you can see by the monthly weather map that we put out with New Fork, that there is something very big and significant happening. And if somebody wants to help us investigate the UFO phenomena, I'm MUFON's here to, you know, to welcome you with open arms and say, hey, you want to investigate UFO sightings? We will train you how to do that. Uh, we have a very extensive field investigators examination. Anybody who goes out to look into a UFO case has to pass one of our exams, and then they get field investigator status to go out and actually look into sightings too. And of course, the best part is, um, you know, we're a great group of people, and uh, if you are really interested in UFOs, you know, you have a great group of people to network with. Thank you very much. 
William Konkoleski, State Director for the Michigan Chapter of MUFON. Go to MUFON.com to learn more. And thank you once again for joining us on the PowerCast. Thank you. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. So, do you believe more in UFOs now than you did before Bill joined us? Well, again, is it about belief or about knowing? It, very interesting character, and um, looks like he's had some experiences as well. So he's not just interested in this from some sort of casual point of view, he's apparently claims he's seen things. Well, he sounds like an abductee to me because he met with this small creature when he was a small child, and I kind of think that there was some kind of abduction involved there, and maybe we should be talking to this dude in more detail. Mm, perhaps. But that's going to have to come on the future. Next week, though, I'm looking very much forward to what you have to offer. Are you going to be telling us about your experiences? Now, you weren't abducted, were you, during this? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, during this episode, definitely yes. not. No, this was a mass sighting, Gene. And joining us on the show next week is going to be my younger brother, who, um, interestingly enough, has decided, after speaking with me, that we need to talk about this episode. I've searched the MUFON database. I've looked online extensively. And I have found nothing about a sighting that happened in the summer of 1974 that was in... In a word, Gene, big, real big. Ah, okay, okay. It sounds like it's going to be a very big episode it, next week. Our fans will be fascinated by the things that my brother and myself saw one day in Caracas, Venezuela in the summer of 74. My brother, myself, my mother, my father, and a few thousand other people. So this is a big one, Gene. On the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.